Hey everyone, welcome again to another Wednesday night class. This is week two of our study of hermeneutics, and I hope it's been uh, hope it's been a blessing so far. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to try and kind of blend um, a, a standard hermeneutics book with uh, some of John Mark Hicks' book, uh, which is uh, Searching for the Pattern. And uh, so for those of you with Church of Christ backgrounds, you can really learn a lot about uh, kind of some things that have influenced us. This week we talk about, uh, we kind of do a little quick recap and then talk about Bible translation. Some of this is kind of technical, uh, but I think it's also important for us to know as we open our Bible what we're looking at and why there are different translations. Again, we hope you're blessed by this and come join us anytime uh, all summer on Wednesday nights. Well, good evening. Thank you, Paul, for leading us in worship tonight as we uh, sang some of those older songs uh, that we were talking before uh, beforehand. And sometimes you just, if you change books or just get out of the habit of singing one, they're just kind of far from your memory. And for me, I can't remember them anyway, so I have to have a book like Paul was doing, just kind of going back and, oh, yeah, I haven't sung that in years. But uh, uh, it's wonderful to, to hear those songs again. Uh, I hope you got a lot out of last week as we began this study. I asked my kids, uh, because I sang a couple of songs that I knew they had been kind of singing around the house, and I asked them, I said, what was your favorite part about Wednesday night? Thinking they were going to say, Daddy, you sang that song I loved. And Logan spoke up and said, you know when uh, Caitlin had to hold all those books? (laughs) Okay. All right, well. That's okay. That is Logan. Logan's got his eye on Caitlin, if y'all don't know that. So the whole whole story there. Uh, but anyway, we started last week. We started uh, talking about this big word up here uh, of hermeneutics, which just means the way we study the Bible. And we're gonna, what I'm going to do for the first few minutes is just kind of quickly give you a, a recap of that, and then we'll go into what we're going to cover uh, tonight. So hermeneutics. The study of the methodological, how you do it, uh, principles of interpretation as of the Bible. So uh, how do we go about it? We open it up and read it. Well, what do we bring to that as we, as we read it and as we study? Uh, and I've talked about, I'm going to use uh, Grasping God's Word. I've got, this is the fourth edition on the screen. I've got the third edition. And so that's what I'm going to use as kind of my textbook. This was my textbook at Harding. Uh, for hermeneutics. Everybody has to take hermeneutics if you're a Bible major. And so uh, if you want to uh, study along, I'll have the the third edition of this. Uh, And that's the picture of it right there, uh, front and center, is the third edition. Uh, Also, this is a very popular uh, kind of hermeneutics book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And that's by Gordon Fee and uh, Douglas Stewart. Uh, Searching for the Pattern by John Mark Hicks is another one. Uh, that I have, and I really recommend uh, that you get. John Mark was one of my professors at Lipscomb, a very uh, gifted teacher. This is kind of his hermeneutic and kind of his story to go along with it, how he was raised, which was a lot like probably most of us in here were, uh, in the way that we come to Scripture, in the way that we study it, and uh, kind of to where he is now. And so you kind of read along with his journey, and because he has a similar background, uh, you'll, you'll notice a lot of things that, oh, yeah, I can relate to that. So that's a good one as well. And last week, we also talked about the tri- traditional way uh, Church of Christ has interpreted Scripture, the, the way we've gone about it, that hermeneutic, 
is called command example and necessary inference, sometimes known as CINI. Okay, and we'll talk about that uh, just a little bit more in just a second. Historically, if you were to look this up just outside, you know, churches of Christ, historically this has been known as the regulative principle. So uh, how we come to Scripture is known as regulative. Uh, Also, this was used by reformer Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, Puritans in England, and conservative Presbyterians in Scotland. Somebody again tell me why that's important to us. That's where we came from, Presbyterians in Scotland. So you've got the Campbells uh, with the influence there. And and there's a lot of things there that we don't even realize we're influenced by uh, the way Presbyterians did things. Uh, And finally, uh, in Churches of Christ, if if you'd never heard command, example, necessary, inference, you've never heard anyone say Sini, you've probably heard someone say the law of silence or something close to that. Well, Scripture is silent on that. That's what we're referring to. Uh, we, we either do that because Scripture's silent, or we don't do that because Scripture is silent. So that's the way, traditionally, churches of Christ have come to Scripture and, and studied it uh, in that way. So John Mark says, I didn't put his, uh, uh, his name on this, but this is from his book, um, Searching uh, for the Pattern. He says, Nothing may be done in the work and worship of the church that is not positively authorized by command, example, or necessary inference. So if we study the Bible in this way, we we look at the way we do things, and we say we cannot do it unless Scripture says we can. Okay? And and so anything that, that last sentence there, anything without positive authorization is forbidden. How many of you grew up kind of with that kind of teaching? Okay, you didn't know it was seeny, but it was seeny. Okay, this is the way you looked at it. And so that, that spawns a lot of those discussions and disagreements uh, that we saw in the video last week with uh, Rick Ashley, right? Uh, you know, uh, there's not a, a thing about located preachers, so we can't have a located preacher. We've got to uh, have different guys get up, and so we, we quarrel about that. Uh, well, we want to have a praise team. Well, where does it say you can have a praise team? And Rick Ashley says, well, where does it say you can have one song leader? But we kind of quarrel about that because we're looking for authorization in the scripture for it. Now, the thing is, scripture doesn't tell you you need to have authorization to do these things. This is a hermeneutic. This is the way we look at it. Does that make sense? It's the way we we come to it and say, well, we have to have this. And the thing is, is that most of the time, people are not consistent on any of this. So we may say, hey, I want to command example or necessary inference. and, And then sometimes... When Scripture is silent, we say, well, we can't do that. And then sometimes when Scripture is silent, we say, well, Scripture doesn't say we can't. And so we're not consistent on it, which is, uh, which is a problem uh, we can all have in the way we interpret Scripture. Again, you think about Scriptures like, uh, uh, I wish for men everywhere to lift holy hands. And how many times have you heard somebody get up and just write that we hadn't done that enough? Okay, and so there, there are parts of Scripture that we, we kind of aren't, well, well, I thought we wanted a command, or, you know, and then we kind of leave it out. And so we just have to recognize that, that we have spots or we have things that we come to Scripture with, and sometimes we're blind to things or we just want something, and that's okay. We just have to recognize that, and we try to learn uh, and continue uh, learning. Uh, part of this uh, command example, necessary inference, uh, John Mark says, necessary inference, as we talked about last week, 
Again, that's so subjective, and I believe Laura brought up, or somebody did last week. Uh, the problem is we're looking for a command, we're looking for an example, and then here's something you have to necessarily infer. And I brought up, well, how many times would you and your spouse look at a situation and necessarily infer the exact same thing? Very subjective. And so uh, people look at this as necessary inference, so you have to think this about this, is seen as Scripture giving you authorizations to do it. Okay, so uh, we, we mentioned, I had no intention of mentioning uh, 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 instruments in worship last week, but that's kind of where we went because I, I, it is a, an example we're all familiar with. Uh, but we come to a, a, a scripture where Paul is talking about, hey, I want you to sing to each other psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And because we come to scripture with that hermeneutic, sometimes we go, look what it didn't say. Okay? Look what it didn't say, and, it's, and he didn't say instruments. So that is, that is Paul telling us, even though Paul could just say, you know, you, you should not use instruments. He doesn't, but we come thinking, okay, because he left it out, because he didn't say it, then we can't use it. Now, I think that's incorrect, but that's how, we, that's how we come to that conclusion is we come and we look at that and we say, look, there's no positive authorization for this, okay? And uh, uh, I just want to give a minute if you have questions about that. I know that's kind of flying through for those of you who weren't here last week. Uh, I got a complaint. You know, I went 40 minutes last week, and 10 of that was, I think, overtime. So... Do you have a question about that? Do you understand that? Uh, is that new to you? Uh, questions you may have because I want, to, I want to be able to answer those. And I'm going to get you a drink while you're thinking. Anybody, uh, anybody know the book by Leroy Brownlow, Why I'm a Member of the Church of Christ? Pretty common book. Um. I might have thrown mine away. I'm not sure. Uh, well, Leroy's approach to that book is sceny. Okay, I'm, a, I'm glad I'm a member of the Church of Christ because we don't have gems. Again, thinking there are no gems listed in Scripture, so we don't have them, so we must be right, okay? I'm not making fun of Leroy. But I'm just saying that's the hermeneutic. That's the way he studies the Bible to get that, Okay. Uh, any other examples you can think of or questions you may have about that? I'm thinking about uh, <laughs> some place to cook food and people together. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's the scripture that says? Don't you have houses to eat in? Yeah. And, that, and that's something I, I think is, is necessary to mention right here. Uh, you know, Terry brings up, all right, if we're just looking for commands and examples and necessary inferences, what you don't see in there is context, right? You just do this, well, why? But we don't care. Uh, we just don't want to, you know, we don't won't care about the context. You know, that, that's possible that we can do, that we can treat it that way. And we can come to some odd conclusions uh, because of that. Good. Anything else? Yeah. 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 
because it doesn't say you can do so out of the church treasury or the church budget. Again, looking for that positive authorization from Scripture of how to do it. Uh, part of that is coming to Scripture thinking that Scripture is trying to give you all the scenarios. That Scripture is trying to lay out, and here's how you do it, which we don't get a lot of, do we? Uh, we wish there was a book of worship where it said, hey, you know, we, we need this many songs and then a prayer, and this many songs of this certain age you know, that appeal to this percentage of people. You know, we want specific details when Scripture has no, you know, reason to give it to us. Uh, you, you think that Scripture is that document, that legal document that lines everything out, and then you start studying the Bible and you realize, oh, this is telling a story. This is not setting out to be that legal document that I'm looking for or think Scripture is. And, and so that's a great example of how uh, we think, okay, well, what do I think about orphans' homes? Well, I go and I know it's important to do that, but I don't find anything about doing it out of the church budget. So since I don't have positive authorization, I can't do it. And that's where they, that's where they come from. Again, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that, and that's why we're, uh, we're studying this, but uh, that's how they, they get there. Paul? And you'll probably get to this later, but that approach really comes out of I need to do everything right to mm -hmm. be approved by God. Yeah. And that's, that's where the whole approach yeah. comes from. Yeah, and you can go back to, uh, you know, a common scripture, probably in your church, but it wasn't mine, uh, Nadab and Abihu, offering strange fire, right? Well, somebody tell me what the actual context of what they did was. Do you remember? We kind of use that as a catch-all. They did something they weren't, they, you know, that God didn't call for. Again, looking at it through this lens. So God didn't tell them they could do this. So that means we can't. Uh, clap or, you know, I'm just first thing top, uh, came to my mind. You know, it's the same thing. So, so the context of Nadab and Abihu is they didn't have faith in God enough to do this. Now, it's interesting that right after uh, God punishes them for not waiting on him, uh, he, he banned alcohol for them at that point. And so it seems like there may have been a little, uh, uh, little drunkenness to go along with that situation. But again, if you're just looking for those, those commands or you're looking for those examples there, you look at that and you kind of wipe out the context. You say, see, you know, this is, uh, they did something that wasn't in there in God's word. And so we can't do X, Y, and Z. So it's always, always interesting kind of, the, uh, kind of the jumps we'll make there. Any other thoughts? Did I completely confuse those of you who weren't here last week by going so quickly? Okay, uh, we're, uh, we're actually going to kind of shift gears uh, into this. We're going to talk about how, how translations come about, translating God's Word. Sometimes that make us, makes us a little nervous, uh, but we're going to talk about that. And some of this can be a little bit technical. I don't think it's too much, uh, but I think it sets a good foundation for as we learn how to study the Bible, kind of where to start. And again, I, I said last week, I am teaching this like I assume no prior knowledge, and that's not a shot at you guys. I, I just think we ought to start at the, the ground level and set that foundation and build on it, okay? And so that's what we're going to do, uh, starting with uh, translating God's Word. Now, is that too much on the screen for y'all? See, I thought it was. Okay, so some of this is directly from... Uh, grasping God's Word, uh, that hermeneutic book that I uh, uh, showed you earlier. 
but I think it's I think I think it is very important to just kind of read their words here. The process of translating is more complicated than it appears. Some people think that all you have to do when making a translation is to define each word and string together all the individual word meanings. This assumes that the source language, in our case of, of Bible translation, is Greek or Hebrew, and the receptor language, which is English for us, we assume that those languages are exactly alike. Everybody know that that's not the case? Okay, everybody knows that's not the case. We could, we could take Spanish, for example, uh, which some of you probably know a little bit of, right? Um, where are the adjectives in Spanish in relation to the noun? Yeah, it's after, yeah. We, we would say the pretty girl, and they may say the, the girl pretty, right? And, and so that's just translation from any language. We, we can't just assume that those are exactly the same because they're not. It says, uh, uh, we assume they're exactly like, he says, if life could only be so easy. Absolutely. In fact, no two languages are exactly like. For example, uh, look at a verse chosen at random from the story of Jesus healing a demon-possessed boy from Matthew 17 and 18. Uh, he's going to give us the word-for-word -word English rendition is written uh, with a transliteration of the Greek. So I'm not going to read the Greek to you. That's, that's not profitable for any of us. But if we, if we read it like this, and rebuked it, the Jesus, and came out from him, the demon. Everybody good with that? And was healed the boy from the hour that. Do you want literal translation word for word? Just, just grabbing a, a meaning. That's what you would get. So he says, should we conclude that the English line is the most accurate translation of Matthew 17, 18 because it attempts a literal rendering of the verse, keeping also the word order? Do we assume that's the best way? Is that the way you read? Does that sound like normal English to you? Of course not, okay? Is a translation better if it tries to match each word in the source language with a corresponding word in the receptor or receiving language? Could you even read an entire Bible translated in that way? I do not want to. No, thank you. You can, you can get a, uh, there's a, I think it's Young's literal translation, and sometimes I get that just to, as one of my things I'm comparing it to. But you don't want to read that. Uh, and so sometimes we come to the Bible and we say, I just want the literal translation. No, you don't. Because what you think is literal is not literal. Uh, it is because both languages are not the same. Uh, the fact that no two languages are exactly alike makes translation a complicated endeavor. Uh, the scholar D.A. Carson identifies a number of things that separate one language from another. Okay, so we've got, I think, three of these. No two words are exactly alike. Have you had enough of a different language to understand that? Comparing words, okay? Uh, as we will learn in our chapters on word studies, words mean different things in different languages. Even words that are similar in meaning differ in some way. For example, the Greek verb phileo, which you probably know, right? You've studied enough love in church, so you know that, right? Often translated to love must be translated what? To kiss. When Judas kisses Jesus in an act of betrayal. So if we said phileo always means to love, that means Judas did what? Love Jesus. So that's how they know. It doesn't make sense, right? There, there's more meaning to that word than just love, Okay. Uh, and that's in Matthew uh, 26, 48. 
Uh, the vocabulary of any two languages will vary in size. This means that it is impossible to assign a word in a source language directly to a word in a receptor language. Again, not the same. Uh, this kind of one-to-one -one correspondence would be nice, but it is simply not possible. Languages put words together differently to form phrases, clauses, and sentences, the way syntax, what I mentioned with Spanish. Uh, this means that there are uh, preset structural differences between any two languages. For example, English has an indefinite article, a and an, while Greek does not. That's fun, right? Everybody ready to sign up for Greek? It's, it's a lot of fun. I had a buddy that was, he was in his oh, mid-50s when we were going through this. And every time he would, he would get like a, a rule down, he thought it should be a concrete rule for everything. You know, a lot of us were raised like, I want concrete, give it to me, right? You know, and, and every time the Greek professor would say, all right, well, here's an exception, he would throw his hands up in the air. <laughs> Do y'all know how many exceptions the English language has? It is ridiculous. It's one of the hard, hardest languages to learn because of so many, you know, I before E except after C in all of these places, you know. It's, it's very hard, okay? So, uh, in English, adjectives come before the noun they modify, and they use the same definite article, the big city. In Hebrew, however, adjectives come after the noun they modify, and they have their own definite article, the city, the big. You want that literal translation? No, you do not. Okay, languages have different stylistic preferences. Sophisticated Greek emphasizes passive voice verbs, which must be because why I like it, because I am a passive voice person. Get, gotten uh, red marks on my paper so many times for using passive voice. It says, while refined English stresses the active voice. I'm just not as refined as a lot of you guys, I think. Hebrew poetry will sometimes use an acrostic ABC pattern, which is impossible to transfer into English. Somebody open up uh, Psalm 119. You got your Bible or Bible app with you? I'll just show you what, exactly what this means. First of all, how many letters do we have in alphabet? Six. Hebrew has 22. So, when Hebrew has an ABC pattern, how could we ever have a direct correlation to every Everything, right? We have different letters. They have different letters. Anybody got Psalm 119? What does it begin with? Aleph. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then if you scroll down just a little bit, bait. Scroll down. Okay. Bait. Gimel. Dalit. Keeps going. And it begins with this weird thing. And you're going, well, how do we do that in English? And that doesn't happen. So that's why you, you actually have there uh, that Greek or the, uh, the Hebrew there is because we don't, we don't have that. That's, we're using these uh, Hebrew letters. Uh, so, again, just pointing out that languages are different, right? Okay, since languages differ in many ways, making a translation is not a simple cut and dried mechanical process. So if you came in here tonight thinking that it was, and I probably went into my Greek, even though I had Spanish before, thinking it was a lot more cut and dry than what it is. Uh, it's just not. When it comes to translation, I've, I've highlighted this, it is wrong to assume that literal automatically equals accurate. Some of you need that again. It is wrong to assume that literal automatically equals accurate. I thought that was the case for a long time. Just give me the literal. That's what I want. 
uh, but I didn't know what I wanted. A more literal translation is not necessarily a more accurate translation. It could be, it could actually be a less accurate translation because the meaning doesn't transfer into English. So what do we have? We translated it literally, but we've lost the meaning. So what does that do for us? Okay. Um, is the translation, and was healed the boy from the hour that, is that better than, and the boy was cured at once? Or, and the boy was healed from that moment. So translation is more than just finding matching words and adding them up. Any questions so far? Kind of get, get the point and you see where they're going with this. Uh, so if we come into it with the uh, preconceived notions of this is just a simple thing. Why do we have these different translations? Uh, you may scroll Facebook and see um, King James versus NIV. The NIV took out so many verses, and we'll talk about that in just a minute as well. Uh, but when, you're, when, when you come to those things, I don't want you to freak out because there are differences and reasons why uh, some verses may be different. The thing I want to uh, leave with you, if you don't leave with anything else tonight, is none of these translational differences are major things. There's not one translation that you read and think, uh, you come to a part where it says, oh, and by the way, Jesus is not Lord. Okay, you don't ever come to that. It's all little bitty things and how uh, how we're talking about small things. There's no like big doctrinal huge thing that we think, oh, my goodness. Uh, what is this? That, that is not the case. So, again, translation is more than just finding matching words and adding them up. Uh, translation entails reproducing the meaning of a text that is in one language, the source language, as fully as possible in another language. And that's the receptor language. And for us, again, that's English. Uh, the form of the original language is important, and translators should stay with it when possible, but form should not have priority over meaning. So, uh, again, if we're just trying to get the literal, we're just trying to, uh, we think literal is the best, that's what you're going to get, and we may lose the meaning. It says, what is most important is that the contemporary reader understands the meaning of the original text. That is why we have a translation. That is why all of you didn't grow up reading Koine Greek or Biblical Hebrew. Okay, you know English, right? Um, uh, Duval and Hayes spend a lot of time kind of comparing uh, the King James to how we speak now in, in this chapter. Uh, and, and, of course, we know uh, some people are King James only and everything, but uh, the whole reason the King James was translated in the first place was to put, the, put the, the scriptures into the language they used. And then we are here in 2022 trying to, you know, some people are trying to hold on to Elizabethan English, which we do not use. You see the, the difference here, okay? The whole thing, the whole reason we have a translation is to get it where we understand it in our language, Okay. Uh, when a translator can reproduce the meaning while preserving form, all the better. Translating is complicated work, and translators often must make difficult choices between two equally good but different ways of saying something. This explains why there are different approaches to translation. Individuals and committees have differences of opinion about the best way to make the tough choices involved in translation, including the relationship between form and meaning. We're going to talk about uh, that in just a second. There are two main approaches to translation, and I've showed you this uh, chart before. So the first one is the formal approach, sometimes labeled as literal, okay? 
uh, or word for word. And the functional approach, often called idiomatic or uh, thought for thought, in, re- in reality, no translation is entirely formal or entirely functional. So formal, again, is trying to get you to uh, get this more literal, uh, trying to keep everything kind of the same. And, and then functional over here is I want to get it in the best language that I can for our people. And both have their strengths and weaknesses, uh, which we will see. Since source and receptor languages differ, uh, all translations will have at least some formal features and some functional features. The, the situation is more like a scale ranging from translations that are more formal to translations that are more functional. And this is the, the chart. Uh, I've shown you something like this before. More formal, you see uh, King James, American Standard, uh, New American Standard, New King James. Uh, Josh went ESV, is that right? Okay. I, I use ESV a lot uh, in college. Uh, you've got Holman Christian Revised Standard, New Revised Standard, uh, NET, uh, and you see, and you get the message. What's the message? Do you all know what it is? It's a paraphrase. Okay? So what Eugene Peterson was trying to do, which he was a very good Bible scholar, knew the original languages, he was trying to get the words of Scripture to unchurched people in his city. That's why he did this whole thing. And so uh, the problem with uh, the message and, and a paraphrase in general is, okay, the, the guy who's doing that is kind of making some choices for you and telling you this is what it means, uh, which is, doesn't mean it's, it's uh, always wrong. It's just you have to understand that going into a paraphrase. So as you go, man, if I quit hitting the wrong button, as you go, uh, a lot of times what you see is this is more readable. More readable, more readable. As you get this way, you can get some really kind of clunky uh, type sentences. And, and I'm sure you've all come to one before and you're going, that doesn't really flow, you know, like I, like I think. Uh, but again, that doesn't mean that just because this is readable that it is, uh, it is more accurate. And it doesn't mean because this may be more clunky in a way that it's, that it's less accurate or anything like that. Uh, but that's what we see in uh, formal or functional. I know this is technical, and I promise not to do it next week, but we have to start, start here. Uh, so let me, let me just tell you the, the pros and cons here. The more formal approach tries to stay as close as possible to the structure and words of the source language, okay? Again, King James, think King James and what, what do we have? American Standard? Uh, uh, translators using the approach feel a keen responsibility to reproduce the forms of the original Greek and Hebrew whenever possible. New American Standard, HCSB, and ESV use this approach. On the downside, so here's the downside of this uh, formal. The formal approach is less sensitive to the receptor language of the contemporary reader and as a result may appear stilted or awkward. Formal translations run the risk of sacrificing meaning for the sake of retaining or maintaining form. You understand that? So we're so worried about keeping the form right that we may lose the meaning for us to understand it. That's, that's possible. It doesn't mean it always does. It just means that's what it runs the risk of. And again, uh, there's our, our chart again. The more functional approach tries to express the meaning of the original text in today's language. So as we move towards the message over there, you get more and more, okay, today's language. Anybody understand that our language is constantly changing? If you don't, you haven't hung out with a kid or especially a teenager lately. Uh, that last movie uh, you saw, was it, was it fire or was it mid? 
I mean, you need to know that. These kids know what, exactly what I'm talking about. Our language is constantly changing. And so when we, we think about this, you think, why don't we keep having all these translations? Well, our language kind of keeps changing. Uh, we used to say, uh, gay used to be a completely different word, didn't it? Uh, people named their, their kids gay. I, I grew up with a, uh, one of my uh, lunchroom ladies. Was, uh, her name was Gay Bray. I don't envy her for the, you know, the rhyming there. But, you know, it used to be a completely different word. Now, it's completely different, right? Okay, so here are the translators in, in functional uh, feel a responsibility to reproduce the meaning of the original text in English so that the effect on today's reader is equivalent to the effect on the ancient reader. Many contemporary translations utilize this approach, including the NLT, uh, which I enjoy reading, and, the, and GNB. I don't know that I've ever read uh, from it. Uh, so, uh, one more on functional. The functional approach is not always as sensitive as it should be to the wording and structure of the source language. So that's a downside of functional. Uh, when it moves too far away from the form of the source language, the functional approach runs the risk of distorting the true meaning of the text. Okay, So we can go either way, right? Again, in either one of these, whether formal or functional, uh, it doesn't mean one or the other is always wrong in this way. It just it runs the risk of it. Uh, and I put that up many times. I guess I want you to remember this. I don't know. Uh, so we could have that. So uh, very quickly, I'm going to take you through their recommendations of choosing a Bible translation. Who wants to share their favorite Bible translation? I'm, you got one? You prefer NIV, okay. I like NIV, but I've learned it's the 1984 NIV, not the one that replaced the other NIV. That's the one you like, okay. The 1984 print. Yeah, but they've done away with the 1984. You can't find it. It's, they took it out of print. They just call the new NIV just NIV. Yeah, 2011. It's very different. It's very different. Taken away from. If hashtag would make if hashtag would make sense. Well, you know, yeah. well, there's some things that don't make sense. You might see that in a paraphrase for sure. If, if yeah. that's what's being used right now. I yeah. Mean, I was talking to her earlier, and I'm like, you don't even say complete sentences. Right. Like, right. It's all, you ever heard them listen to a song? It's so part of it. Weird now. Drippy. drippy. Right, drippy. Yeah. So I mean, if they're gonna use that, to, yeah. 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 You would you would expect to see something like that uh, in a in a paraphrase, a very loose paraphrase, like a. Uh, I don't know if Eugene Peterson would have done that, but something out there on the functional side. Changes based on what people are seeing and hearing and talking. Then mm -hmm. 
Yeah. They'll and use that in 20 years to replace the 2011 version. I didn't see radical anywhere. Radical. There you go. That was the 70s. They did 95 and 2000. Yeah. Well, and, and what, what you're talking about there are not, uh, you haven't seen those. You haven't seen those, those big changes like that. Um, and and a, lot of the, a lot of the gender neutral stuff, I'm for. Because when we read in the King James or, or you know, New King James or whatever, for all men. Well, we know what that means, right? It doesn't mean all males. And so when they change it to all people, that's not a problem for me. You know, that, that's, that's, that's the way we're using it. Uh, I, think we're, I think in some ways we're kind of sensitive to the cultural changes we're experiencing, thinking that maybe that's part of it. And it could be, uh, but I think a lot of a lot of what we've seen is is really uh, just using more of what we would say now. You know, all people, all y'all is you know. If I do my version, be all y'all. So uh, number one, this is how they uh, select uh, choosing a translation. Choose a translation that uses modern English. Again, the whole goal of a translation is to get it to where you understand it. And so we didn't have a bunch of differences or a bunch of people. Uh, volunteering there, but the NIV is a very good modern translation. Uh, you understand it. Again, the whole point of making a translation is to move the message of the original text to the language you understand. Uh, so they just point back to the King James, like 1611 to uh, what they say is actually used today, like the uh, King James, you bought a King James Bible, is actually a 1769 version of the King James, so 150 years or so. Well, language changed, didn't it? And so that's actually the King James you buy today is based on a, a 1769. Um, there's little to be gained by translating a Greek or Hebrew text into a kind of English that you no longer use and can no longer comprehend. Uh, I posted one time on Facebook, I think out of the ESV, and one of my uh, King James only uh, sisters said, John Robert, and that's how you know she's from my hometown. Uh, she said, John Robert, I don't understand that. Which is confusing because it's modern English, but uh, her whole point was it wasn't the way she knew it to be, which was Elizabeth in English and King James. Uh, but the whole goal of translation, again, is to put it in our language, the language we use, okay? Uh, number two, choose a translation that is based on the standard Hebrew or Greek text. I have highlighted that. I'm not going to read through it. You're not going to remember it, and I never look. Uh, because I, I know the, the main uh, translations, and so I'm never looking for this. Uh, and it says Old Testament is this, New Testament is this. Uh, I looked at the NIV, and you can find here's the Old Testament, how it's translated, from what. Here's the uh, Greek text from the New Testament, and this is where it comes from. So it's in there. You can find it. Uh, number three, give preference to a translation by a committee over against a translation by an individual. And they explain it this way, translating requires an enormous amount of knowledge and skill. A group of qualified translators will certainly possess more expertise than any one translator possibly could. Um, you, you kind of see uh, this uh, example uh, when you're studying from commentaries. Um, I, I mentioned in our small groups that uh, if you go to school, if you go to Bible school right now and you were going to write a big paper, you don't pull out Matthew Henry's uh, complete commentary of the, you know, complete Bible, okay, because it's one man trying to cover all these things. You get an author who has spent a lot of time in one book, and you go from them, okay, because they have, they have spent all that time. Instead of this broad thing trying to cover it all, they've spent a lot of their time and, and scholarly work right here in this. 
And so it's kind of the same way. You don't want just one guy doing all this. You want to bring all this expertise uh, to the table. Uh, and again, uh, NIV shows you that it's a committee thing. Uh, and notice it says the committee, uh, which it says the committee on Bible translation. The committee is a self-perpetuating group of biblical scholars charged with keeping abreast of advances in biblical scholarship. So that's one part of it. Understand biblical scholarship and changes in English uh, issuing periodic updates to the NIV. So as language changes, uh, it changes. And number four, choose a translation that is appropriate to your own particular purpose at the time. Some of us need to, to hear that again. Uh, you, you don't necessarily need to read your kids or, or some kids that don't know anything about Scripture, one of those more functional or one of those more uh, formal translations. It says when you want to read devotionally or read to children, consider a simplified functional translation like NLT or New Century Version. If you're reading to non-traditional or unchurched people, then consider contemporary English or the message from Eugene Peterson. Uh, if you're reading to people with English as a second language, Good News Bible. And if you're reading to a King James only church, just go New King James. Give in a little bit, okay? Uh, do, do just a little bit. So uh, I'll just finish with this just to see uh, the differences here. King James here uh, in this scripture. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Now, none of that is too, you know, confusing for us. But it does feel clunky, doesn't it? Okay, we don't speak like that. There are no words in there that you can't figure out what they mean. Uh, but the NIV, in the same way, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. A lot more flow, right? A lot more. We're not having to think about, you know, ye is probably the easiest thing, but will not suffer the whatever. Okay, just a little bit easier. Uh, and you know the ESV, so I'll go to NLT. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Okay, you see the differences. And that's, again, you're, you're moving on the spectrum there. Um, and finally, I'll just read from the message because I haven't done that today. Uh, again, a paraphrase. To, uh, Eugene Peterson is trying to get this to the people, unchurched people there. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. Is that accurate to what we just read with everything else? Yes. Uh, just because it's, it's way over there on that side does not mean everything you read is wrong. Uh, it's just they, they showed you here, here are some of the ways that it can uh, go backwards. And so there's, the, uh, there's just the, the bullet points for that. And if you're interested in that, uh, I'll, I'll make that available. Uh, again, I understand that is super technical in some ways. Uh, that there are uh, probably stuff you're not used to, especially since we have had Bible class a long time. Um, but I think this is uh, important to kind of set, again, that baseline to understand what is a translation? Why are the differences? Why are we having these differences in languages? Or, uh, you know, can't we just look at the same uh, set of Greek and Hebrew and come up with, one English translation. Well, no, because of, again, 
What are we trying to do? What are, what are the committee or person trying to do? And again, the differences in language that often what you end up with is, well, it could be this or that. Again, that doesn't, the this or that is usually not a big difference, but it is a difference. And, and so uh, the back and forth that comes with that. I didn't bring a bunch of books tonight. I'm sorry. Um, I did put, uh, well, I do want to mention this. I, I did put some resources at the end of this. And so if you want to look at, look at them, I'll, I'll have them rolling. Um, they just have a recommendation. It says, for serious Bible study, we suggest, and this was, uh, this edition of that book was 2012. So I don't have the fourth edition. I don't know what they recommend now. New American Standard, New Revised Standard, English Standard, Holman Christian Standard. I really like that. Uh, the NET Bible and the New International Version uh, 2011. Again, depending on the audience and the situation. Um, so, uh, again, if you have any questions about this, uh, let me know. I know it can be very confusing, but uh, uh, I think it's very important to understand why the difference is. So let's end with a, uh, with a prayer, and I'll let you guys go. I don't think Jordan has an hour meeting after this, so it'll be a short night for some of you. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we are thankful for this day. God, we thank you for all the ways you continually bless us. God, we thank you for uh, just the way your word has come down to us over the years. There have, we understand there have been people who have even lost their lives just trying to get your word in common language for all the people. God, we pray that we will not uh, look on this uh, and not care. Lord, that uh, we just pray that we don't take it, just forget the, the benefit, the blessing that is having a Bible in, in our pocket wherever we go, uh, having different translations wherever we go. God, we thank you for that. Help us, uh, help encourage us to continue in your word. God, be with us as we go through the rest of this week. Help us to be examples wherever we go and to show uh, an example of love and, and caring to everyone we meet. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.